0: Open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Today we're going to continue in our study of the Beatitudes, uh, a look at eight pronouncements made by Jesus about a certain kind of person with certain heart attitudes that Jesus says, this is the kind of person with with heart attitudes that Jesus says is fortunate, he says these kinds of this person is privileged this person is blessed and as we've been saying over the weeks what we're looking at in this passage is not a list of eight different kinds of people right i don't know how many of you go on facebook and take those little tests like these little quizzes like which which star trek character are you or something like that this isn't like which beatitude best defines me no this is this is meant to be eight different eight eight characteristics that that are that come as a unit of promises, all belonging to one specific kind of person. One person that Jesus says is blessed and fortunate and privileged. A person who belongs to God's kingdom. A kingdom person. This is the kind of person you are if you're a Christian. Okay, so the things in this list apply to you if you're a Christian. And so, these attitudes and, and their promises serve as a character sketch of a kingdom person. This, this, these Beatitudes act as an outline, like a work of art that's only now seen in, in pencil, and in black and white lines, in this life. But one day, in God's kingdom, this is a, a picture, a portrait, that will exist in permanent ink and in vibrant living colors. In that sense, there is in each beatitude an element of already, but not yet. Already, but not yet. What do I mean? I, I mean, for instance, that as we've studied before, those who mourn over their sins now are comforted already each time they confess those sins to God and He cleanses their conscience with the assurance of forgiveness by virtue of the shed blood of Christ. Right? That's already. Already. We already have that as God's people when we mourn over our sin. But one day, a day that has not yet come, there will be an ultimate and uninterrupted kind of comfort when the need for confession itself has gone away forever. Because the very memory and pain of sin has been removed forever from human experience in God's kingdom. Amen? Are you looking forward to that day? I know I am. Now at the same time, we've also said that there's as we study the Beatitudes, there's also a sort of progression taking place from one Beatitude to the next as well. It's a graduation of religious character, we've called it. Each heart attitude that we've studied depends on and is built on the ones before we've said. They spring out of each other, Charles Spurgeon said. In other words, not only do we as kingdom people have a promise of a greater version of each blessings, uh, each of these blessings still to come, not only is there a greater version of these waiting for us in the future, but we also have the promise of a progression in this life from one to another, from one heart attitude to another in a way that looks like a greater and greater growing in holiness before God. And before others. Whether we're aware that it's happening or not, that's a great grace, right? Because you can look at yourself and say, I don't see any of that happening. But we're not to be looking at ourselves. We're to be, there's a great, uh, there's a great saying for every look itself, take 10 looks at Christ. Okay? God is changing you whether you're aware of it happening or not. So that one who starts out, one who, because we all have to begin at Stage one, being poor in spirit, right? One who is poor in spirit admits his own helplessness without God. And seeing his own sin naturally mourns how it has hurt the one who has saved his soul, as well as how it hurts those around him. Humbled by God's grace, such a man decreasingly uses his own strength and his own wisdom and his own influence to get what he wants from God and from others, but instead, in meekness, increasingly leaves his life and the outcomes of his life in the hands of God. Such a man likewise desires to do what God wants, what pleases God, to greater and greater degrees. It's a desire to apply the righteousness of God's law to every area of life in an ever-increasing gratitude and joy for what God has already done. And we could go on and on with these, showing how they progress one to another. So that what we have in this character sketch by Jesus is a picture of the kind of person with a kind of changed heart that Jesus says can change the world. Can change the world around us. But first, we said last week, but first, these changes of heart must first change that person. Before God can change anything in your family, or anything in your school, or in your city, or in your nation, or in your world, God must first change you. Before He does it through you, He has to change you. This week I watched a Macy's commercial that I, th- I think it was a fair glimpse, actually, of how many Americans are feeling this 4th of July weekend. I mean, commercials are commercials, right? We don't want to kid ourselves. They're, they're meant to increase commerce, right? To improve sales for a particular business. I get that. Um, but this one, so they pull heartstrings on purpose, right? But this one, I think, actually struck pretty close to home. It, There's an element in this particular commercial of truth. There were children in this commercial uh, looking up at a waving American flag. There were parents with their children looking up at exploding fireworks. And the voice of the narrator over it all was encouraging Americans to look up and look forward with hope to a better tomorrow. And I think as cheesy or as self-serving as it was, it nevertheless spoke to a very real longing, I think, that many Americans have right now, to find our way forward towards things we can agree on again. A a real desire for unity, or at the very least, a longing for a better future. I think we all want that. We're seeing in our country, like rarely before, a frantic searching for peace. We're seeing attempts to purge from our history the impurities of the past, all in the name of making something better, out of our future. And we as Christians can affirm the desire for purity and for peace and for a better future, can't we? God's Word affirms these desires as well. But I believe, as we'll see in our text today, that the Bible also confronts and challenges some of the ways our country is trying to get there, to that future of purity and peace. And I believe that the Bible offers instead the only alternative that can truly succeed in dealing with the past and looking to the future with any hope, and it is this, individual hearts that have been changed by Jesus Christ. And so today we're going to look at the next heart attitude in this list possessed, that's possessed by the kingdom person and why that trait makes this person so fortunate so privileged, so blessed, as well as why the world is so blessed to have such a person in it as well. Last week, we looked at... What did we look at last week? Anyone remember? Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and then for mercy, I heard someone say. Those who are merciful. This week, we're going to look at the pure in heart. The pure in heart. So let's get right at it. Look with me at verse 8. It's our only verse. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They shall see God. That's the promise. You probably all heard the story, so if I've said this before, forgive me. You have probably all heard the story of the thief who breaks into the house one night, only to hear a voice from the darkness in front of him say these three chilling words. Jesus is watching you. The man freezes in his tracks. He's He strains his eyes. He's looking forward in the darkness, trying desperately to see who's speaking to him, but it's useless. It's just too dark. Great beads of sweat begin to gather on his forehead and threaten to come into his already blinded eyes. He tries to comfort himself with the thought that at least it can't be that Jesus who's watching him, but still he knows someone is watching him. Someone is looking at him. And when he takes another step, again a voice comes from somewhere in the darkness ahead of him. Ah, 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 Jesus is watching you. Finally he can't take it anymore. The man throws the switch on his flashlight and thrusts it out in front of him, desperate to see who it is who's speaking. But as he does, As the light illuminates the room in front of him, the thief begins to laugh. Because there, in front of him, in a large cage, sits a parrot. Jesus is watching you, the parrot warns again just then. Yeah, the relieved thief mutters, I'm sure he is. And he switches off his light with a chuckle. And as the room is plunged back into darkness once more... The man hears a growl behind him as the parrot calls out two final words Hear Jesus! (laughs) Jesus is watching you. All joking aside, one of the hardest things about being a Christian is the fact that we can't see Jesus, isn't it? We can't see the one we worship. In fact, whether we're talking about God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit, our God is invisible to us. I mean, I suppose it's fitting, we're, our, we're, our faith is described as, we're described as people who walk by faith and not by sight. But this has always been somewhat problematic for God's people. I don't know if you're aware of this. Christians endure endless mockery from atheists over this, surely people have said to me surely if God exists he wouldn't have made it so hard to find him what do we say to that or they say fine fine I believe in an invisible God too and he's a flying pink unicorn what are we supposed to say to that it's hard to worship an invisible God even God's people in the Bible struggled to follow an invisible God we, we look at the Old Testament and, and only three months after their miraculous emancipation from slavery in Egypt, complete with signs and wonders and pillars of cloud and fire, three months later, the people of God give Moses up for dead the very moment he's making his way back down Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments written by the hand of God Himself. At the very moment Moses is carrying down these Ten Commandments, the very first of which prohibits the worship of any other gods, and then making images of any other gods to worship, any gods to worship, at that very moment, guess what they're doing at the base of the mountain? They're making an image of God. A golden calf. A God they could see. And they were worshiping it. It's hard to worship an invisible God. John Calvin was right when he said, the human heart is an idol factory. We we long to worship what we can see. The desire is so strong, we can make just about anything into an idol. You remember, not long after the golden calf incident, we read the story of the bronze serpent. that, That God had Moses fashioned during an outbreak of deadly snake bites later on in the Exodus journey. If bitten, the people of God were simply to look at the snake, lift it up on the pole, and they would be saved from death. Now it wasn't an image that God was telling them to worship. It was meant to be a picture of faith. It was an object lesson meant to teach God's people that they could do nothing to save themselves from death and instead had to simply trust God by doing what He said. And what did God say? He said, look at the snake. And just by looking in faith, they were healed. Just as we must look to Jesus, lifted up as He was on a cross to pay for our sins. If we look to the cross, With eyes of faith, trusting Jesus as having died there for us, we too are saved. Faith is that simple. But 750 years later, we find out in 2 Kings 18, we're told that the the children of Israel had turned even the object lesson into an idol. And we're actually burning incense to that very same bronze snake. Because it's hard to worship. An invisible God. Now some of you might be wondering, well, you say He's invisible, but what about all the theophanies in the Bible? A theophany is a a visible manifestation of an invisible God. So like, think of the, the, the burning bush that Moses saw. Right? That's a theophany. Or the pillar of fire that all of Israel followed through the desert. Or the Shekinah cloud that filled Solomon's temple. Aren't those examples of Seeing God? And speaking of Mount Sinai, what about Moses asking to see the fullness of God's glory? And then we're told that God passed by him and showed him part of his glory. Didn't he get to see God? Well, yes and no. Yes, people have seen visible manifestations of God, but no human being since Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden have seen God's face have truly seen Him fully as He is. Even on Mount Sinai itself, God says this to Moses in Exodus 22, You cannot see My face, for man shall not see Me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by Me where you shall stand in the rock, and while My glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with My hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you may see my back, but my face you shall not see. Even Moses was denied the supreme blessing of seeing the face of God. Why can't human beings see the face of God and live? doesn't seem hardly fair. Because at the fall, we were corrupted by sin. We lost both the ability and the privilege to see God's face. We were made filthy by our sin. We were made impure. And as a result, says R.C. Sproul, God will not allow Himself to be seen by those who are impure. It's for this reason that, that the physical structures of the tabernacle and later the temple itself were ways of walling people off from the presence of God so that He could not be seen or approached. Which was good because as we're told, the soul who sees Him will die. And so it was both a reminder of judgment and at the same time an act of great mercy because without those barriers there was a legitimate fear that the holiness of God might break out against all impurity and all evil and destroy it wherever it was found, even in you. Even for the priests, okay, even, even for those who were granted special access past those walls, Even for the priests who were given permission to approach God beyond the temple barriers, even for the many hundreds and thousands of priests who over the centuries would never even get to see a theophany of God their whole lives. Even these men had to follow elaborate external rituals and rules just to be clean enough, just to be pure enough to burn incense or offer sacrifices in the temple or on the temple grounds. And, and following these rules was no joke. I mean, not only were these rules extremely demanding, I mean, just very complicated things, but failing to keep them could get you struck dead for your impurity. And so there were special clothes they had to wear and purification rituals with water they had to follow and certain foods that could never be eaten and certain things that could never leave the temple grounds and certain things that could never enter the temple grounds. And of course, there was blood that had to be regularly spilled and sprinkled on altars and clothing in the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant once a year just to to cover the sins of the people. But the point here is this. With all of that, with all of those rules to follow, to stay pure, still, following all those rules, none of it made you pure enough to see God. None of it. Which is why, whenever you see someone in the Bible, if you're reading along in your Bibles, and you see somebody suddenly, unexpectedly finding themselves in the presence of an angel, much less a theophany from God, what do they do? They fall on their faces in fear. They're terrified. Why? Because they know that that they're not pure like they should be. They know that what is impure has no right to stand or even survive in the presence of that which is pure and holy. And so, Moses trembles before the burning bush. The shepherds in the field of Bethlehem are what? They're sore afraid in the presence of the heavenly host. Try to imagine the horror of Isaiah when he finds himself in Jehovah's throne room. Woe to me, he cries out. Why? Because he is a man of unclean lips. But when Jesus gathers his disciples on this mountain, And he says to them in the presence of the listening crowds that they are blessed because they will see God. What you need to understand is that he is voicing the greatest hope of every God-fearing Jew. To stand before God's unveiled face once more without fear like it was back in the garden. To experience the blessedness of finally seeing the very essence of God Himself to see God, to see the God that they have worshipped and loved. To see Him face to face as He is, without fear of being undone because of the curse of their sinful impurity. Just one glimpse, no, will be enough to satisfy the soul and calm the troubled spirit. Just one glimpse will be enough to bring final peace. To bring that deep shalom that humanity needs. This hope is, in fact, what is echoed in the highest blessing of Israel, found in Numbers 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. But how could such a hope ever become a reality? How could this be promised? If Moses couldn't even see the fullness of God's unveiled glory, who could? Who was pure enough to experience such a blessing? The Pharisees? The priests? Who? But notice, Jesus doesn't pronounce this blessing on those who are outwardly clean, does He? You'll notice he doesn't announce that it is those who are following all the laws for maintaining ceremonial purification who are the fortunate, the privileged, the blessed. No, he speaks of an inward purity. As he looks at this little band of misfits that he has called to himself, he speaks not of an outward purity, but of a purity of heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, he says, for they shall see God. They shall see God. Despite what some think, the reason we can't see God isn't because He doesn't exist. It isn't even because God is spirit, and eyes of flesh like we have can't see spiritual things. No, the real problem, we're told, that keeps us from seeing God according to the Bible lays deeper. The problem is deeper. The real problem, we're told, is with the heart. Sin has corrupted the human heart. I remember posting that on Facebook one time and an atheist friend of mine commented and he said, it must not have been that bad of a corruption. After all, the human heart still seems to pump blood just fine. That's not the kind of heart we're talking about, is it? That's not the kind of heart. We're not talking about a literal flesh and blood human heart that has been corrupted. The word for heart comes from the the Latin word core. It's just a word that means the core, the center of something. And in this case, the center of our being, just as the human heart is the core of our physical bodies occupying the most important place in the human system, so the same word is used figuratively for the center of humanity's inward life, the source or seat of all the forces and functions of the soul and spirit, that place in us where God bears witness to himself. That is what is corrupted. And that is why we cannot see God. And so a Jew could follow every external ritual and law and still not see God. Because all of those laws can be followed and still bypass the most important purity of all. The purity of the heart. One time, uh, deep in the mountains, when I was um, on a hunting trip, I found an old glass jar. It was really small. It was really cool, and it still had, in fact, the uh, the original metal lid. But it was it was on there pretty tight. I figured I'd go, I'd take it home, and I'd clean it up. And I would like to collect bottles, and so I figured I'd take it home, clean it up, and put it on my shelf to remember the trip by. So I got home, and I I cleaned up the outside real good. You know, it's glass; it cleans up pretty well. Uh, cleaned it all up, but I was really disappointed because when I went to unscrew the cap to clean inside, I found it was stuck. It didn't matter how hard I tried, that thing was on there for good. And it was really disappointing because inside the jar, even though the outside was beautiful, the inside had this weird gunk in it. It was filled with, with stuff. On the outside it shone, but the dirt on the inside kept it from being truly clean. Jesus had a strikingly similar critique of the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23. Two groups who fixated on external purity. This is what he said. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee! First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. In Matthew 15, we have Jesus making a similar point after the Pharisees criticize His disciples for eating with dirty hands, of all things. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, Jesus says to them, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. He goes on to say, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. Listen to this list. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, and add any other sin that He didn't name. These come from the heart. These are what defile a person, Jesus says. This, by the way, is why in Isaiah's vision, in the throne room of God, he's spared. He's spared. Not because he does anything to purify himself outwardly in God's presence, but if you remember that story, how is he purified? An angel takes a purifying coal from the altar and touches what? Touches his lips. His unclean lips. Not because what is outside needed cleaning, but because what proceeds from the mouth is a picture of what resides in the heart. Touching his lips was with a cleansing coal, was symbolic of purifying his heart. That's the only reason he survives in that vision. It is only once the human heart has been washed, it's only once that place in us where God bears witness to Himself is cleaned, that God can again be witnessed by us and through us. It's only a pure heart that produces external purity, not the other way around. It's only once the heart has been remade and washed clean that the outside of the jar can begin to become truly clean as well and begin to have a positive effect on the world around it. Before God can change anything in your family, before God can change anything in your school, before God can change anything in your city or your nation or your world, He He must first change you and He does this by washing you from the inside out. And here, I think, is an incredibly relevant word for our country on this 4th of July weekend. Because there's a frantic effort going on right now that is focused on revolutionizing external systems and laws and rules in an attempt to purge from our nation our guilt. And to wash clean the impurities of our past. And to the extent that there are legitimately unjust laws that need to be changed, yes, we as Christians should do our best to help right whatever wrongs we can. Because true injustice in the Bible is always called what? Sin. It's called sin. So we, we have to, if there's a true injustice, we are obligated as Christians to fight against it. True injustice in the Bible is always sin. And part of hungering and thirsting after righteousness that we talked about last week is applying God's law of righteousness across the spectrum of society. It's part of what that means. But part of the problem with what is going on in our nation right now, as far as I can tell, is that just like the scribes and Pharisees, indeed, just like Adam and Eve back in the garden, there seems to be a focus on externalities in in ways that bypass and even deny the most important problem of all. The sin problem found in the human heart. Just as the human heart circulates and pumps blood throughout the rest of the body, so figuratively that central part of us that is dark and dead because of sin circulates the impurity of sin throughout our being. And until that core is changed, what it circulates within us and pumps out through us cannot change, that can't change either, regardless of how many external laws or systems or statues we choose to keep or tear down. Until we face the heart of the problem, we will only continue to use band aids to cover bullet wounds, or to be more precise, we will only continue to use fig leaves to cover a fractured heart. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is this, how can human hearts be made clean? How can human hearts be made whole? Because the cap on the jar is stuck and no one can break the seal to clean up what's inside. No one that is except Jesus. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What the disciples understood Jesus to mean as they hear Him say this, what they understand Him to mean by pure in heart in that moment on the mountain, we can't be sure. But whatever they understood Him to mean, we can certainly now look back and see that Jesus Himself was the way to this purified heart, as well as the only way to see the face of God and live. How do we know this? Well, we could look at a number of different places in the Bible to prove this, but just consider, just consider Paul's words to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. There he begins with a graphic profile of the impure human heart as well as its sure destiny. Listen to what he says. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, he says to the church in Corinth. And I have no doubt that such were some of the disciples as well. But then Paul says this, "But you were what? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified," he says. How? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What, what that is is a the, is theological shorthand for saying they were saved and their hearts were purified by the person and work of Jesus Christ. They were first of all, they were washed. They were washed. First uh, Titus three four and five says this: When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel thirty six twenty six: And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. They were washed. That means the Holy Spirit supernaturally cleansed and recreated their dead hearts, quickening them from spiritual death to spiritual life on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus. Jesus traded His life for theirs so that He got death and they got life. And the same thing is offered to you. Second of all, they were justified. They were justified. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, He, God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That means God counted the pure and holy righteousness of Christ's heart as though it were their own. Those, those people in Corinth that He's talking to, the disciples, Jesus is talking to you, if He's talking to you, if you're a believer, this is what happened. God counted the pure, holy heart of Christ as though it were your own and took all the dark impurities of your heart and counted that as belonging to Christ. And at His death, the guilt for those things was buried and gone forever. And He offers the same thing to you. They were washed. They were justified. Finally, they were sanctified. Romans 6.19 Just as you once yielded your members, the parts of your body, to impurity and to greater and greater iniquity, to bigger and bigger sin, more and more sin, so now yield your members to greater and greater righteousness for sanctification. They were sanctified. That means they experienced sin a definite point in time where there was a break from the ruling power and love of sin in their hearts. And they turned to Christ. And from that moment on, God was working in their hearts to make them progressively more free from habits and patterns of sin and progressively more and more like Jesus in their actual, actual lives. And He offers the same thing to you. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Isaiah 1.18 If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1.7 And so we ask, what can wash away my sin? And the answer comes... Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And the beautiful thing about the purified heart, the heart of a kingdom person, the heart of a Christian, is that this is a purity of heart that is both a completed past activity by virtue of faith in Christ, as well as a continuing, increasing result. It doesn't stop until death, until you see Christ. By virtue of the sacrificial death of Christ, said one commentator, Christians are a new and purified people for God's possession. And now, he says, able and willing to perform the corresponding works. What works? The good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10 The inward life of believers is cleansed from past sin, but it doesn't stop there. Your life, if you're a Christian, has been cleansed from past sin, but it doesn't stop there. It then becomes, God then makes your heart wholeheartedly directed and devoted to God. What does that change? What does that change? Everything, Eric said. You ever notice that, I don't know, some people don't like looking at other people's eyes when they're talking to them? But if if you do, if you make a habit of trying to look at someone in the eye when you're talking to them, you ever notice that you can't focus on both eyes at the same time? Right? You gotta pick one. You gotta pick one and stare at it. Otherwise, you end up staring at the bridge of their nose and then you get cross eyed. It's not a good thing. Or how about this? Why is it illegal to drive and text at the same time? Why is that illegal? Well, because it's, first of all, it's just stupid, but it's because, because why? Because you're, you're, your attention is divided, right? You, when you're doing that, you can't do either one of those things right. You're either going to veer off the road, or you're going to text something inappropriate to the wrong person. Neither one of those is good. And this has always been part of the problem of the impure heart. The impure heart is always a double-minded heart, a divided heart. The impure heart cannot see God in part because it's always trying to look in two directions at once. The impure heart keeps driving off the road because it's looking back over its shoulder as it runs from the guilt of sin. But here is the continuing trajectory of the heart that has been washed clean of sin's guilt. It is a person whose single-minded loyalty to God begins producing more and more progress in more and more areas of their life. It is a person who God is purifying more and more through the reading of His Word, through prayer, through the fellowship of the saints, and yes, through the trials and testings of life. All of those things serve to purify us. Through it all, God is cleaning away the filth both inside and out. And the more He works to cleanse us in our lives, the more His glory is able to shine through that jar of our lives to affect the people around us. And so this is the next trait. If you've been waiting to take notes this whole time, I know some of you, it's just the thing you look forward to all week long. If you've been waiting to take notes, this is the next trait. Of the kingdom person, the kind of person Jesus says is fortunate, privileged, blessed. A kingdom person is one who is forgiven of sin and given a single-minded loyalty to God. A person who is forgiven of sin and given a single-minded loyalty to God. Why does this make such a person fortunate? Because such a person is free. From lingering guilt and made increasingly able to see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If you're a Christian, your past has been forgiven. And because of that, you can stop looking over your shoulder. Now you can look in one direction. You can look forward. You can look upward. You can look heavenward. Because of Jesus, you've been made able to increasingly see God in His Word. See God in your life. And one day, in person, see God face to face. And on that day, according to 1 John 3, 2, we shall be like Him. We shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. What does that mean? I don't know, but it sounds great. We shall be like Him. It seems to mean that on that day, our purification or sanctification process will finally be complete. And in that glorified state of finished purity, our hearts will at last be equipped to see the Lord face to face as He is. Or, or it may also mean that on that day, it will be the first glimpse itself of His face that will change us. That will push us across the finish line. That will complete the good work God has already begun in us. That just as one look at Medusa changed the flesh of warriors into stone, so one glimpse of God will finish the change of stony hearts Into flesh. One look into those fiery eyes like coals taken from the altar will sear away at last every trace of corruption in our hearts so that we can be like Him. Whichever the case, we have a promise, says R.C. Sproul, that the God whom we have worshipped without seeing is the One whom we will behold face to face. And it will change us forever. Have you ever wondered why so many of the building materials in the New Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21 are described as transparent, gem-like, clear? I mean, you've got rivers of crystal. You've got walls built of jasper. You've got streets of see-through gold. The whole city Described as having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. Why all the clarity? Why all the clarity? It is because in the new heavens and the new earth, nothing will ever be allowed to veil or obstruct any part of God's glory anywhere, ever again. Nothing unclean will ever enter the city. No impurities will ever stain its laws. No filth will be able to interrupt the light of His glory, not even any more in the jars that are us. It will be a transparent city built for a transparent people. And the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Revelations twenty-one twenty-three. Friends, as we look up at our waving American flags this 4th of July weekend, and as parents with their children look up at the exploding fireworks, and as we listen to the many voices encouraging Americans to look up and forward with hope to a better tomorrow, let us not forget to first look to Jesus. Because unless our hearts have first been washed by the blood of Christ, all of our looking will be in vain. Because we will have missed the face of God. But to you who have looked at Jesus already, to the kingdom people, to the pure in heart, Jesus says this, you are blessed. You are blessed. To you God says this, lift up and raise your head because your redemption is drawing near. To you He says this, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace.